Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our health care system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Health Care, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our health care system as it exists and as it could be. For better health care and a better health care system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman, founder of the drscore.com physician rating website. On today's program, we explore one of the big problem areas that people are talking about, about fixing, medical mistakes. We're going to be talking about medical errors that should never happen. To speak to us about this, we have Dr. David Nash, MD and MBA Dean of the Jefferson School of Population Health at Thomas Jefferson University. I'm in awe of Dr. Nash's breadth of publications. His research addresses the quality of healthcare in the United States, disease management outcome measurement, productivity measurement, and clinical care quality measurement. Welcome to our program today, Dr. Nash. So we're spending all this money on health care. How is it possible that, that mistakes are still happening? That's uh, a wonderful question, and you are right in your observation about what we're spending. I'm sure our listeners know that the United States spends more money per person on an annual basis for health care than any other country in the world. And yet, according to the best evidence from the OECD and the Commonwealth Fund, over the last four years, the United States doesn't even rank in the top ten of all countries worldwide based on the outcomes of what we're paying for. In short, we're surely not getting value for the money we're spending. And part of the reason we're not getting value is we continue to have an epidemic of medical error. An epidemic? What, what kinds of errors are we talking about? Well, we're talking about that medical error and preventable medical mistakes are the fourth leading cause of death in the United States. Wow. Fourth leading cause of death. What are some of these errors? So the ones that make headlines are the ones that people recognize. Uh, a 10,000-time appropriate dose of heparin to Dennis Quaid's twins, the switching of... Uh, incompatible blood, uh, killing a organ donor at Duke Medical Center. I remember that one. Uh, the death of uh, Josie King from dehydration at Johns Hopkins Hospital while her mother insisted that something was wrong and all the house officers and attendings ignored her. And regrettably, the list goes on and on. The Joint Commission receives dozens of wrong site surgery reports every month, even in 2010. So we need to make our um, healthcare system a little more like airlines. These disasters, these these mistakes are happening, or the it's equivalent of planes going to down. Fly cross country than it is to have your appendix out in any community hospital in the United States, at least statistically speaking. So you're right, Steve. We have a long way to go to make healthcare harm-free. We're never going to make it 
error-free. What we must do in our practice lifetime is make it harm-free. Um, how do you quantitate these costs? Um... It's an excellent question. The best research evidence we have is that medical errors that people survive in the typical community hospital cost somewhere between three and $5,000. That is uh, extra time in the hospital, more drugs, more tests, uh, recovery, etc. So even if you look at it from a cost perspective, we would do well to reduce error just because it would reduce waste and reduce spending, not to mention the suffering, of course. So from an economic perspective alone, reducing errors is good business and good medicine. Well, that, that's got to be true. It, our health system, we, we're spending a little bit more per person than other countries. We're spending a lot more. Is, is re, uh, eliminating these errors going to make a dent in that? Eliminating errors would make a big dent. It would certainly reduce a lot of uh, suffering, no question about that, and would reduce medical expense, that's for sure. But it can't be done in isolation. People who do research in this field full-time and experts in our School of Population Health and the director of our Quality and Safety Online Master's Program and related experts around the nation all agree that it's going to take a top-down cultural change to really change how we approach the system's nature of care. And only when we understand systems can we reduce error. When we talk about the costs, are we talking the direct costs or are there indirect costs that are contributing to the um, expense to our system? Excellent observation. We're clearly talking about both the direct medical costs, an extra day in the hospital, an extra stay in the ICU due to sepsis from a line that never should have been in in the first place. And then we're talking about the indirect costs, the non-medical costs of people taking time off from work to care for loved ones, the direct non-medical costs of time lost from work, the ripple effect throughout the economy from medical error is staggering, most especially during the time of a recession. Is, um, you know, I've heard people talking about how doctors order unnecessary tests. Is that somehow to protect them from the possibility of error? Well, you and I both know as practicing doctors that uh, upwards of 7, 8, 9% of the total annual health care bill in our country is attributed to what might be called defensive medicine, doctors ordering tests to make sure that if they do get sued, they're covered. But that's 8 or 9% of the problem. The other 91% of the problem is understanding the system's nature of care how complex care is, how to improve communication, how to improve training. It's a long to-do list that we need to undertake. Yeah, I'm wondering how you, how you begin to start at that um, at a systems level. We can maybe later in the show talk about um, the, the congressional efforts to do that. But for now, let's, let's go back to the medical errors and what do we do with medical errors when they occur now? Uh, well, depending on the organization and how far along you are on the journey to reduce error, in a just cause organization and a just culture that has been through appropriate training, we learn from every error. In fact, the, there's a Japanese management expression called Kaizen, which refers to 
learning from our mistakes to improve the processes. You mean we weren't doing that before? Well, we really weren't because, first of all, we didn't admit when there was a mistake because we were so terrified of being sued. And as a result, we condemned you and me to make the same mistake next week that was made by one of our colleagues. So until we have total transparency and sharing of information and have a non-punitive culture, that's the way to reduce medical error. And the evidence is mounting, and you're aware of the reports from the University of Michigan and Annals of Internal Medicine, even in the last three weeks, that when you admit to a mistake, you not only reduce the chances of that mistake happening again to another patient, but you lower your liability exposure, and your total average annual premiums go down, and your total average annual awards go down. So transparency, complete sunshine, is the best disinfectant on this problem. When we When we achieve transparency, we will reduce the burden and the burden of suffering as well. So while there may be folks who would argue about what's the best way to transform the entire culture of medicine all at once and handle communication. At least one step probably everybody should or would agree on would be, let's start with making many things in medicine more transparent, certainly errors so that we can learn from our mistakes. I can only say amen to that. Yeah. All right. So um, you are the dean of a school of population health. That's right. Um, I get the sense that that's part of the culture change, that the the, the concept of that kind of school is a different way of thinking about medical care. Uh, Well, thank you for that astute observation. I'm very grateful to the leadership of Thomas Jefferson University, most especially our university president, Robert Barchi, our university provost, Michael Verger, our hospital president, Tom Lewis. These leaders have made a very visible commitment to us to support the creation of the only school of population health in the United States. And and how does it differ from the kind of medical school education that I received 20, 30 years ago? Yes, well, you and I are the same generation where we learned how to do procedures on the poor, on people of color. Today, of course, most medical students thankfully learn procedures in a simulation center like the one we have at Jefferson Medical College. Also, we're putting this material into the curriculum just as soon and as an early stage as is possible. We devote here at Jefferson an entire day in the third-year medical school curriculum run by our School of Population Health on a full day devoted to third-year students' roles in reducing medical error. We have electives in the senior year for medical students. I lecture to the second-year medical students. Every single graduating senior meets with me for one hour by the time they're done of their senior year, and we talk about their role in improving the quality and safety of care. So we're making progress, but it's slow. And, of course, we're only one medical school. We're very appreciative of our colleagues at Northwestern Medical School, where there's another master's degree in quality, the University of Illinois at Chicago that has a special training program in quality and safety. So there are pockets of progress around the country, but we have a long cultural road we have to walk on before we can really say that modern American medical education is fully committed to the agenda 
of measuring and improving what we do every day. You know, I've, I've heard the airline analogy used um, with respect to malpractice and safety. I don't, I've never heard it used to describe how we are trained. So what, what you were saying about our training is that uh, folks of our generation, it, it was as though the um, pilots learned by flying around poor people of color. Well, that's in part right. But let's go back and, and let me extend that analogy. Uh, prior to 1977, the military and commercial aviation industry had more crashes due to pilot error and poor communication than equipment failure. And it was only after the dreadful Canary Island crash of two 747s on the ground, killing more than 500 people, that the industry really woke up and said, we must find a better way. And that better way led to the science of crew resource management, now called CRM. And you and I could certainly understand how improving communication could save lives. Did that endotracheal tube really get in the right place? Is that the right lab test? What is the patient's name, and is she the only name on the floor with this condition? And on and on it goes. So if we could practice to improve communication, which we know from other industries is quite doable, just imagine how many lives we could save. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. We're speaking today with David Nash, dean of the, let me make sure I get this right, uh, School of Population Health? That's correct. At Thomas Jefferson University. Thank you. So there was so much noise um, back in the springtime over healthcare reform in the United States. With the upcoming elections, that noise is beginning to perk back up. is what our government's doing the right way to go about improving our healthcare system, or is there something else that should be going on? Well, that's a huge question, and certainly we could have an extended conversation about the details of the Affordable Care Act. Let me try to narrow your good question with regard to the topic at hand, so let me rephrase it if I might. Is there anything in the current bill that specifically addresses the quality and safety of medical care? And the short answer is not really. So we're going to spend billions. We're going to create new delivery systems, primary care medical homes, accountable care organizations. Uh, We're going to put pressure on the managed care industry and limit the medical loss ratio. Uh, We're going to give additional money to primary care doctors. We're going to have demonstration projects in Medicare, and it's a long, long list. But strictly speaking, are we devoting those kinds of resources to measurement and evaluation to improve what we do every day? The short answer, regrettably, is we're not. I've always, and maybe this is just my bias, having grown up in a system that that doesn't measure, so it really doesn't know how it's doing, but it just strikes me that measuring quality is... Well, it's impossible. (laughs) Well, it's not impossible at all. See, that's the disconnect. We have a very robust and mature science now, and we have lots of very good both process and outcome measures. And so what we can't do anymore, Steve, is take the white coat and hide behind it, make it an impenetrable shroud that only people within the sorority and fraternity know the secret code. doesn't work that way, not when we're spending 17% of the biggest GDP on the planet. Maybe when we were at 5%, we could get away with that, but not today. 
All right. So um, well, let's make it concrete. You specialize in hospital stuff. I specialize at the total opposite end of the spectrum in dermatology of all right. things. And, you know, I think I got asked by the, my, my American Academy of Dermatology to help serve on a committee that will look at outcome measures in dermatology. Wonderful. What kind of outcomes can we look at? Oh, you can look at lots of outcomes. First of all, let me set the stage if I might. We know from solid research and articles that would fill the room I'm sitting in that ambulatory care is four times as dangerous as hospital care. That's right, four times as dangerous, statistically speaking. Now, the good news is an error in the office usually is not fatal, but the total numbers of error on a per-person basis are four times what they are in the hospital. That's part one. Part two, I'll give you a great dermatology outcome measure, one that we've used at the Jefferson University faculty practice plan. Five years ago, I asked our very busy dermatology practice, what's the average turnaround time from a biopsy in the office that proves to be cancerous to notification of the patient? They didn't know the answer. So you're only going to manage that system or process that you measure. Okay, so that's a process measure. That's a great process measure. A good outcome measure would be individual physician measures of competency, individual dermatopathology measures of how accurate their readings are. We could go on and on. So there's both process and outcome measures that I think would be very germane. And And by the way, we didn't waste any measures on any experts or on any specialists. I spent two years talking to every department chairman at the country's largest private medical school, asking them to come up with measures that were important to them as to what their faculty were doing in the office setting. And, and so the, um, for our listeners, I just want to make sure they understand, when we talk about process measures, we're talking about measuring things that we think should help improve outcomes. That's Whereas correct. Whereas as an outcome measure, we're actually measuring the outcome. And so when you went to this faculty and you said, tell me, you know, the things that are important to you, did they scratch their heads and go, um, uh, I don't know, I'm not, I've never thought about it that way most, before. Most scratched their head and worse, <laughs> many said, we're already so great, David, why should we bother measuring yeah. anything? But then the, then the few, the young ones stepped up and said, well, we could measure this. That's correct. The younger ones exposed to these issues in training and even as far back as medical school said, wait a minute, I want to be the best. How do you help me to do a better job? All right. Here's the cultural issue, the rock we're rolling uphill every single day. For an expert to admit that he or she could do a better job makes that expert vulnerable. That is the core issue. Yeah. And we're taught one many things in medical school, and for sure, being vulnerable ain't one of them. Except at your medical school. <laughs> well, we're trying, that's Excellent. for sure. So I get the sense now, until the system changes, maybe people have to take matters into their own hands to some extent. Or do you have any suggestions for them? Oh, that's a wonderful observation. Sure, every patient is ultimately responsible for talking to their providers about all aspects of their care. I'm referring to two books that I can think of right away, David Shulkin's wonderful book, uh, Questions Patients Should Ask, and Patty Spaeth's wonderful book, now in a second edition, um, Protecting Yourself from Medical Error. So let me give you some concrete examples. It's very straightforward but hard to implement. Every patient 
should not take a single pill until they know that their provider has explained what the pill is for, what the potential side effects are. And one day if you're in the hospital and that pill is purple and the next day it's yellow, you ought to ask, excuse me, yesterday this was purple, today it's yellow. Are you sure this is the right darn pill? Mm-hmm. Now, there's ways to ask it nicely. I also wouldn't let anybody touch me if I hadn't seen them wash their hands. And you and I know that across the nation in 2010, the average hand-washing rate in an ICU setting is just above two-thirds. So patients have every right to participate and ought to participate directly in their own care as much as they're able to by asking some pretty basic questions. Excuse me, Dr. Nash, how many times have you done this procedure? May I speak to a patient like me on whom you've done this procedure in the past Mm -hmm. with your permission? And on it goes. Yeah, it sounds like if you're in the hospital, you might want to wear a big, fat name tag to make absolutely sure. Uh, that's very important. <laughs> if, you, if you end up in the hospital, I certainly would recommend that you have your own ombudsman with you, preferably a family member who can help you and can ask those questions to deflect some of the issues from the patient to the ombudsman. Dr. Nash, you've been very generous with your time today. Um, We've given our listeners a few um, practical suggestions. Do you have any other suggestions for them about um, their health care or our health care system that you want to get them motivated to, to get involved in? Sure. I appreciate the opportunity. To me, I think you can explain what's wrong with American medicine in three words. And those three words are unexplained clinical variation, which is a fancy way of saying doctors do what they're trained to do. And so part of our challenge is make sure that the training process incorporates all the things we've had the opportunity to discuss here today. Self-evaluation, measurement, transparency, an opportunity to close the feedback loop. We've got to be able to do these things to really improve and to do what doctors want to do in their heart every day, which is to do the best job they can. Oh, I would echo that. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Dr. Nash represents probably the epitome of where our healthcare system seems to be headed, one towards greater transparency, greater accountability, greater dependence on measurement to assure that patients really do get the care that they need. I think Dr. Nash hangs a lot on the fact that People across the United States get different medical care, and that variation almost implies that somebody's getting better care than somebody else. And so what we need to do is to reduce that variability, making sure that everybody's getting the best possible care. You can only do that if you measure it. And I think to some extent he's right, um, but as I've probably mentioned to you before, I think how we do those measurements will be will be somewhat tricky. Measuring across different doctors and comparing them uh, can lead to unwanted things to happen. Um, in theory, somebody could try to avoid the patients who are more difficult to treat because they don't want to ruin their score. I don't worry too much about that. I, I think one of the big values of, of doctor scoring systems uh, 
including the doctor score um, system that we use to obtain feedback from patients on how they thought the doctors are doing, is that doctors themselves are self-competitive and that you don't have to compare them to anybody else. You just show them how they're doing and they're going to do their best to, to do a better job. Um, as Dr. Nash, and I think I would completely agree, um, doctors desperately want to give patients the best possible medical care. And so giving them the tools to do that, um, giving them measurement tools that help them achieve that kind of success is something that they will all be looking forward to. Well, next week um, we have a guest schedule that probably could elaborate on this and many other important areas about physicians in the healthcare system. It's Cecil Wilson, MD. He's president of the American Medical Association. Should be a very fun, interesting, and enlightening uh, interview. That's it for our show today. Our theme music is by the incomparable Michael Zioli. Until next time, I wish you the best of health. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to healthcare empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com, DrScore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare.